Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, my name is Annie McManus. You are so welcome to Changes. Hello, delighted to have you with me for this week's episode, which is a really memorable one. I'm speaking to you from the office at the end of the garden, as per usual, but it is actually the first time I've worked from the office this week because T, God help him, got COVID. So he's had to work from home. So we've swapped the way that we work. Instead of me staying at home and kind of pushing everyone out the door after a chaotic half an hour of looking for uniforms and books and bags and all sorts, T is now the one staying at home and I'm the one bringing the kids to school and then walking the 15 minutes after to T's studio where I have been working from. Now, I didn't realise how much working from home was kind of affecting me. I am a naturally sociable person. I thrive off talking to people, connecting with people. I like having conversations with people. And because of that, Tea Studio, which is a complex and has a cafe and there's like a buzz, there's people about, it really suited me. I really liked going and kind of running into people and being able to go and have a cup of coffee and have a chat. I just really enjoyed that aspect of it. And it made me realise how much I am lacking that by working from home and how much I'm in my own head all day, which I am anyway, because I spend the majority of my time trying to write. So it was good. It wasn't a change I expected. It just happened. But in doing it, it really helped me realise what I need. And, you know, now I have to try and put things in place to make sure that I'm kind of not rattling around on my own in the house all day, every day, because it kind of drives me demented. I thought I could set you a very gentle and non-committal bit of homework and ask you this week to think about something you could do, something you could tweak in your daily routine, in the way that you live your life, that could change your life for the better. It could be anything. It could be cooking something different. It could be doing some different type of exercise. It could be instead of every time you go to WhatsApp your friend, you pick up your phone and you ring them. It could be locking your phone in a box and letting your kids choose what they want to do with an afternoon. Anything at all. The smallest thing that you could tweak just to try out something in a fresh way. Try it. I will do an Instagram post this week and let's compare and contrast our successes and failures in doing a little life tweak. (laughs) Okay, so onwards and let's hear from this week's guest. If somebody decides that the price of suppressing themselves has become too much, they can change. It's a question of getting conscious, but change is possible. That is the voice of the renowned best-selling author, physician and addiction expert, Gabor Mate. 
Gabor is in huge demand to speak about his expertise on addiction, trauma, childhood development and the relationship of stress and illness. He's written five books published in over 30 languages. You may have heard me and T speaking about his book Scattered Minds on our ADHD episode. Um, It really helped us understand the roots of T's ADHD and also how to live with it. As well as that book, Gabor has written a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which is all about addiction. Uh, And he is also co-developer of a therapeutic approach called Compassionate Inquiry, now studied by hundreds of therapists, physicians, counsellors and others around the world. Gabor teaches that as human beings, we are creatures of our environment and that our bodies are inseparable from our psychology and social relationships. The way we think directly affects the way we physically feel. He's written a new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. He wrote it with his son over 10 years and it is, I can tell you because I have it, the size of a brick. But if I was going to try and dumb it down to just a couple of sentences, I would say that in the book, Gabor tries to show us that living in Western society, just living in Western society is trauma inducing. And the concept of normal, what that means can be very, very harmful. Then he tries to help us understand the road to healing. Like so many others, I'm such a big fan of Gabor Maté, but he is not without his critics. Some of his teachings go against common practices in medicine, and some people disagree, for example, with his approach to addiction, arguing that trauma and addiction are not connected. He mentions on occasions in this conversation where people have dismissed his theories. Gabor was born in Hungary in 1944, during the Second World War, and is a survivor of the Holocaust. His maternal grandparents were killed in Auschwitz when he was five months old. His aunt disappeared during the war and his father endured forced labour at the hands of the Nazi party. His mother went through a lot to keep him alive. He believes these traumatic early years impacted his whole life and the way he behaves even today. It's part of why he is who he is and why he now helps others. It was a genuine honour to get to speak to Gabor and be in the same room with him for this episode. As he is touring his new book, his voice is stretched, so we've removed some coughing to save your ears, and you'll hear him holding back some coughs at times as well. I hope you love this conversation as much as I did. Gabor is the oldest guest I've ever interviewed on Changes, which is why I was quite surprised when he told me where he went to on his recent trip to Berlin. Just before we stopped to do an official introduction to this, you told me that you were at Berghain, the iconic nightclub in Berlin, yes. back in May. Yeah. How was that for you? For one thing, if I had been on MDMA or something, I know it would have been just a completely mind-blowing experience, you know, because the vibes and the freedom of the people in there. Mind you, I think it's a constrained kind of freedom. Partly, there seemed to be a desperate energy about the place. It wasn't purely about self-expression. It was also kind of escaping from the world. That was Mm. my sense. There were acres of skin, of course, (laughs) of of all genders. Um, And ages? uh, All kinds of ages. Did you feel feel of age in there? Did you feel like you were older or...? I didn't have an age sense about it. I was probably one of the oldest people in there, but, you know, there were all kinds. Um, Yeah. There were some really beautiful people in there. I mean, that's a place where you can just watch people forever and not mm. get bored, you know. Mm. And uh, How do I say this? 
I could have wished that my sexual preferences were broader because there's so many attractive people there <laughs> of all genders, you know. Why do I have to be so straight, you know? But, <laughs> <laughs> and musically, just even without any psychedelics, which a lot of them seem to be on. Mm. Um, but there was such a pulsating, compulsive invitation about the music itself, mm. to, just to join in and let your body go, you know? Mm. So, And then in the light of day, it looked a bit sadder. Once people were on the outside and the sun was shining on them, mm. there was a kind of a sense of loss of mystery and mm. just people trying to be people. Mm. I love that you went. Did you have friends that brought you or is that something you wanted to do? Uh, frankly, I didn't know much about it. So some f Berlin friends of mine who right. who had connections to the door door person got us in. Yeah. You know, because it, apparently it's not that easy to get it's in. It's not easy. It's infamously yeah. hard to yeah. get in. Yeah. yeah. Wow, amazing. So... You are here um, on, as you just told me, an epic five-week tour, kind of going around the world talking about this incredible book, A Tome, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Um, I would like to get into that with you, Gabor, and mm. I would also like to talk about change, yeah. um, which is what this podcast is based on. So if you don't mind, can I start by asking what your relationship to that word is, change? Well, um, it's always intriguing. But it's rather neutral. I mean, change can be positive or negative. Generally, when people come up to me and say, you've changed my life, I know they mean something positive, but something in me wants to ask, well, was it for the better? You know. <laughs> so, But you know what? G given how static the world seems to be in some ways, I mean, there's, on the one hand, there's rapid change on a superficial level, yeah. but, but in a deep spiritual, emotional level, I think there's a deep stasis that's going on. So for me, change on the whole has a positive um, resonance. And we've asked you to, to kind of think about three big changes in your life before coming in here. Um, so I'm going to go straight to the childhood change. You said the 1956 Hungarian Revolution and emigration to Canada. So you were born in Budapest in 1944. Yeah. What were those first years of your life like? Well, this is the first year, which was um, my infancy under the Nazi occupation to Jewish parents. And mm. so it was frank horror for a whole year and uh, bare survival and separation from my mother. And I was quite an ill baby, apparently, under the conditions. Right. Um, that grief struck and terrorized mother. So um, what, was the, what was the context of the separation from your mother? Oh, the refuge where we had found a place to escape from the walled ghetto where people were being killed every day. But that refuge itself was so crowded and the sanitary conditions were so awful and I was so ill. My mother didn't think I would survive more than a day or two there, so she handed me to a stranger in the street, asked her to take me to some relatives and were living under relatively safer conditions. How long were you with them? My mother says five or six weeks. That's what she says in her diary, and I don't know exactly how long. Okay. And, I mean, you write about this in your books, about how that experience, quite profound experience in your infancy, manifests yeah. in your life still now. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that? Well, it manifested this morning because I got a communication from my New York publisher, the details of which really don't matter. Yeah. But my reaction was so much like that of a frustrated infant you know yeah and now that partly has to do with the fact that i'm as you mentioned i'm in this long tour now i am rather tired mm. so and i haven't done 
much emotional work or self-care on this trip. And so I am somewhat depleted. And when, yeah. when I'm depleted, I default to my basic frustrated infant mode. And that's what happened today. You know, and as an infant, I had a lot of frustration. Yeah. So this disconnection with your mother. Yeah. Ends up um, coming out in different ways as an adult still. Yeah. And I suppose is that a central tenet to your teachings, I guess, this kind of emphasis on those first few years of your life and how they are so powerfully powerful over the rest of your years? Well, actually, some research seems to indicate that children who had their needs met for the first three years, yeah. but then face difficult circumstances afterwards, do much better than children who have tough circumstances for the first three years, and then everything is okay afterwards. Yeah. So those first three years are absolutely formative. I mean, the human brain, by age of three, is 80% adult size the body is 20% adult size. Wow. So it's a tremendously essential and sensitive period of brain development. And it's in those first three years, in terms of our relationships with our caregivers, that we actually form the template that we have of our worldview and how we feel about ourselves and how we regard relationships and all that. And the unconscious mind, which is mostly the right side of the brain, forms before the intellectual left side. Mm -hmm. And when the emotional brain is unbalanced or doesn't have the right conditions for its development, then the intellect becomes kind of unmoored from essential reality. So the intellect can be very sharp and acute, at the same time completely wrong because it's serving the wrong master. Because the emotions aren't there to support it. Exactly. Right, okay. So, Gabor, you also mentioned this uh, journey that you made across the world yeah. to uh, to Canada. Yeah. How did that impact you? Well, there were two big changes there. Um, one is that in Hungary, I'd grown up as a real acolyte of the communist system. You couldn't but grow up like that. My teachers and my parents weren't going to tell me how dictatorial and brutal that Stalinist system was. Yeah. And I just believed in all the slogans and the pomp and the parades, except for one teacher that I had who very bravely, in retrospect, said to me, said to the class in grade five on, is it the winter equinox or the winter solstice? What is it? But he said, boys, this is the darkest day of the year. It also happens to be Stalin's birthday. Wow. No, but don't tell anybody I said that, he said. Okay. No, I didn't understand it, why he was saying it, or why he was saying not to tell anybody. Mm. But he was making a political statement. Mm. But it kind of escaped me. When the revolution broke out in October 1956, all of a sudden the scales from, from, fell from my eyes and, and, and I was such a sh- shock to realize that this whole world system that I believed in, I accepted a whole pack of lies. Right. And that taught me how influenceable we are as human beings and how we can actually live in a world that doesn't really reflect reality. Mm. And that happens universally, by the way. And and so there was that disillusionment, which, as I say in the book, it's a good thing to get disillusioned because I say to people, would you rather be illusioned or disillusioned? Would you rather believe in <laughs> a fairy tale world or would you rather see reality the way it is, painful as that might be? The second change was that all of a sudden we left the culture and the country and the language that I knew and all, we find ourselves in the wild west of Canada. And you were how old? I was 13. Which is also a time of change and, 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 and emotional discomfort. As well, yeah. yeah, it's very uncomfortable. And the family was less together because my parents were too busy making a living. And as kids, we spoke English much better than they did very quickly. Mm. So there was both a loosening of the family structure 
a very rude and quick cultural shock of a change. Yeah. And now I'm suddenly living in a new system that I had to adjust to and learn about. So that was a huge change for me. You say in the book about our species are actually very good at change when it's incremental. Well, we're very good at change, sometimes when it's even rapid, but we're not aware of the cost that it incurs. I mean, young kids growing up today have no idea what it felt to be alive in pre-digital days. It's a completely different ethic, and it's a completely different culture. It's a completely different, completely different way of being. So we're a bit too good at creating change, but in a way that our emotional maturity doesn't ca- catch up mm. with the changes in lifestyle and changes in ideology and changes in technology. As long as it's incremental, we can make those adjustments. But when it's as rapid as it is now, it's purely disorienting and alienating. Yeah. Let's talk about this book then, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. How do you want to assist in changing people's minds when they read the book? How do you want them to think different about the way they live? Hmm. The best feedback you get is somebody reads the book and they say, now I really understand myself. Yeah. So that's what the book is intended to do, is to help people understand themselves and to accept themselves um, including their problems and their dysfunctions and their illnesses. And they all came along for a reason. I say for a reason, I don't mean anybody deserves them, but there's always an explanation. Yeah. So I wanted people to understand their health and their illness. I wanted them to understand their childhoods. I wanted them to understand why they feel about themselves the way they do, why they relate to their partners the way they do, why they work the way they do, why they see the world the way they do. A rather modest undertaking. (laughs) I mean, it worked. In my case anyway, which is the only case I can speak for, I feel like it's really worked. It's made me look at everything differently and also a lot of people in my life. It's made Mm. me see them in a different way Mm. and people who suffer. Yeah. So give us the headlines, um, Gabor, in terms of the Western world and illness. So if normal, as we know it, is kind of healthy, right? Yeah. Then what does that landscape look like? Well... uh, that's the myth of normals, that what is the norm in this culture is also healthy and natural, which it isn't. Mm. So there's a narrow context in which normal equates to health and nature, which is in, say, the medical sense, where beyond a certain spectrum of temperature, blood pressure, blood chemistry, there's no life yeah. possible. In that case, health and what's natural equates with norm. That's the normal range that doctors talk about. Yeah. The mistake we make is we extrapolate that sense of normal to this culture. We say this is what the norm is. This has got to be healthy and natural. Yeah. I'm saying that what the norm in this society is in terms of how we handle children, how we handle birthing of babies, the pressures we put on women, the inequalities that characterize this society that everyone takes for granted, the power relationships the values that we live by, the consumerism that activates our so much of our lives, the digital world into which we get sucked in, like into a vortex. Yeah. These are the norm in terms of that's what's happening, yeah. but they're really unhealthy and really unnatural. So if normal can, in fact, be unhealthy and harmful, physiologically, mentally, spiritually even, you've given some examples of how, but what core needs, human needs, are being compromised? Mm in living in Western society? 
So we can look upon this, say, um, the needs of children. Right. And then the needs of adults. Okay. So children have basically four core needs, which if deprived from them, suffering results and, and maldevelopment results. So the first core need is an absolutely secure attachment relationship with nurturing adults. I'm not talking about a relationship where the parents love the child, which is almost always the case, mm. but in which the child actually feels secure, mm. absolutely secure, safe, because it's only under conditions of safety that the brain and the nervous system develop properly. Um, so that core safe attachment relationship with parents who are emotionally attuned to the child, so actually get the child's experience. Right. That's the first one. The second one is that within that relationship, the child have, should have what a psychologist friend of mine calls rest. Rest means the child doesn't have to work to make the relationship work. Okay. That the relationship is just there. The child can't earn it and can't lose it because it's unconditional. Okay. So I, I don't have to take care of my parents' needs. I don't have to take on their stresses. Mm. I don't have to be good, pretty, smart, compliant, you know, in order for that relationship to be absolutely stable. Yeah. So that's the second one. The third non-negotiable need of the child is the capacity and the freedom to experience all their emotions. Now, our emotions are not luxuries. They're wired into us, uh, into our brains by evolution. Yeah. And so we have a number of emotional circuits that we share with other mammals, actually, which include, for example, the capacity to care, you might call that love, um, lust, of course, without which there's no procreation, um, seeking curiosity, gaining mastery of the world, mm. anger, which mm. is absolutely essential for as a boundary defense, yeah. grief, which is the, the process loss, fear. So these are essential emotions. And the child should have the right and the freedom to experience all of these emotions. I didn't say to engage in all kinds of unacceptable behaviors, but that the emotions themselves need to be validate, validated and supported. Okay. And so many families, these are squelched in a child. We also have an essential play circuitry in our brain. We actually are wired to play, as are other mammals. I mean, just look at puppy dogs or, yeah. or cats or yeah. lion cubs. Bear comes, yeah. they play. Why? Because play is essential. Free, spontaneous play is essential for brain development, mm. much more important than intellectual pursuits. And so when these are deprived from children, as in our society, they often are. A lot of play these days is with digital devices yeah. or with plastic, pre-manufactured, prefab, totally unimaginative yeah. gadgets. Whereas the free, spontaneous play, which is creative and uh, flows from the child's imagination, that's what promotes brain development. So deprive these four needs, as they often are in this culture, that results in maldevelopment of the child, and it results in all kinds of problems that then are then medicalized as if they were diseases. Right. But they're not. They're just the result of the fact that the child didn't have the conditions to develop either psychologically or in terms of brain circuitry mm. the way nature intended them to. Mm. So... If that's the case, then, if there's medicalization of these situations that have happened with children not being given the, you know, enough in terms of their core needs, how does that change how we look at illness? Well, for example, um, uh, the subject I wrote my first book about, Scattered Minds on yeah. Attention Deficit, plus or minus hyperactivity disorder, um, is seen as a genetic disease. Yeah. 
I say it's neither a disease nor is it genetic. There's biology involved, but we have to keep in mind that the human biology, including the biology of the brain, is shaped by the environment. So that it's an interaction of the genes and environment. And the most important, this is what's astonishing, not as a fact, because it's almost self-evident as a fact, but as a fact that's not even taught in the medical schools, is that the physiology of the brain, the circuitry of the brain, the most important influence on this development is the emotional relationship with the caregiving adults. Yeah. So when the emotional relationship is stressed, because the adults are stressed, Mm. distracted, depressed, economically challenged, their relationship is maybe tense, Yeah. as it was with my wife and I when our kids are small. Whatever's going on, the child is stressed. Mm. Now, if you and I were stressed as adults, we could do something about it. We could change the situation, leave it, something. But when a child's being stressed, there's not a whole lot they can do. They can't leave, for sure, and they can't change the situation. So what they do is they tune out as a way of protection. Yeah. So it's an adaptive response to early life parental stress, which is not the fault of the parents, by the way. Yeah. It's just how their lives are. Mm. But if you look at why are more kids being diagnosed these days and medicated, it's because the parenting environment has become so stressed, so one of their few recourses young children have is to tune out. When are they tuning out? When their brain is developing. Mm. So now you've got this adaptation against stress, later on diagnosed as this genetic disease, mm. which totally misses the point. You talk about stress a lot in the book and how much Western medicine seems to to miss out on this very hugely important underlying feature of anyone being ill, which is, you know, as you said, their environment and also their emotions and how that feeds into their physiology. Yeah. Uh, I found that stuff so fascinating. Well, Just, what's, what's even more fascinating is that it's not even controversial, scientifically speaking. Yeah. You know. But why it, doesn't Western medicine... Because Western medicine doesn't look at the science. Ask people, tell me about your childhood. Are you going through stress? You know. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, But I often talk about these three diseases that, you know, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, breast cancer in women. Okay? Oh, this bit blew my mind. Yeah. It blew my mind. So the first person to describe multiple sclerosis was a French neurologist in the 19th century who said this was a stress-driven disease. Mm. Sir William Osler, a Canadian physician who was knighted for his work here in Britain Mm. by Queen Victoria, he said that rheumatoid arthritis was a stress-driven disease. He said this in 1890. A British surgeon, James Paget, said in 1870 that breast cancer was related to a woman's emotional states. Now, they had no research. What they had was their brilliant intuition mm. and, and the wealth of observation. They were just wonderful clinicians. Since then, for all three of these conditions, we've had oodles of research showing a relationship between trauma, stress, emotional factors, and these three conditions. Mm. But as you say, you go to a doctor with any of these conditions, nobody's going to ask you about your trauma. Nobody's going to ask you about stresses in your life. Mm. Nobody's going to ask you, how do you feel about yourself as a human being? What are your moods like? They're just not going to ask. This this is in the face of all the research. So there's this tremendous gap between what science has demonstrated and what medical practice is willing to engage with. When you look at both autoimmune diseases, the rate is rising. Um, when you look at mental health conditions, the rates are rising. You look at the number of kids being diagnosed and medicated, those rates are rising. We can understand those as sort of unexplainable, random events. Yeah. Or we can say there's something going on in this culture, in this way of living that is driving those diseases. And um, when you look at 
what I said about the essential needs of children and how this society deprives kids of those essential needs, then it's not wonder that more kids are committing suicide, that there are higher rates of ADHD, anxiety, depression amongst children, more self-cutting and all that. These are normal responses to abnormal circumstances. Mm. That's how I would put it. And so, again, to understand most physical illnesses, there's some physical illnesses that are purely genetic. One of them's in my family, muscular dystrophy. If you have the gene, you have the disease. Yeah. My mother had it, my aunt had it. They both died with it. But those diseases are very rare. And so most illnesses of mind and body are generated by the environment. I keep quoting on this trip a British expert, Dr. Richard Bental, who's a member of the British Academy. He's a psychologist. And he pointed out that the link between childhood adversity and adult mental illness, scientific evidence linking those two are as strong as the, as the evidence linking smoking to lung cancer. And yet, most physicians, most psychiatrists just don't have a clue, uh, again, for the paucity and lack of training that they receive. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You were a physician for many years. Yeah, 32 years. At what point did you start realizing that there was holes in the Western practices of medicine? Well, I was always interested in systemic thinking, looking at the larger picture. Yeah. I had an English and history degree before I went to medicine, in contrast to most of my classmates who were strict science students. Mm. They never lifted their heads out of the test tube, like it was always about okay. just the biology. But having said that, in family practice and also in palliative care, which I did for seven years, looking after terminally ill people, I couldn't have noticed that people's emotional states and traits had a lot to do with who got sick and who didn't. And what I didn't know is there had been all this research pointing to exactly the same fact. But nobody told me about this research. So I'll tell you an astonishing story. I went to the British Columbia, Canada, where I live in Vancouver. I went to the British Columbia Cancer Agency, which is the clearinghouse and treatment facility for malignancy. Okay. Yeah. I went to the head of the psychology department, and I said... I'm writing a book on the relationship of stress and cancer and stress and illness, and I'm wondering if you can help me. She said, well, we don't believe there's any connection. Then I went to the library in the same building mm. where I found hundreds of papers 
šunu veše bovi motions to malignancy. They didn't even know what was in their own library. Mm. That's how bad it is. Mm. Having read the book, I find it quite scary. It feels like there's just this huge gaping hole in people's awareness mm-hmm. of how much of their feelings affect their body and their yeah. physiology. How can at all the way that medicine is practiced change? Can you see it changing? I certainly see a lot of my colleagues uh, walking the same path that I have. I mean, they just, they don't necessarily leave medicine, but they, they, they practice with a different uh, consciousness. And when they do, they find that very rewarding, actually, because they feel they've made it. There needs to be a certain element of confidence to do that, right? Because it's not what you're taught. A lot of doctors don't have the confidence. They don't have the openness. They don't have the emotional intelligence. They're not taught that. They don't have the information, and they're under such stress, Mm. you know. But I do know that when people, I mean, when I was giving a talk in New York a few weeks ago, this woman comes up to me to have her book signed, and she said, I'm a recovering interventionist cardiologist. Like she, she got so stressed out doing her work because it was so, so narrowly focused yeah. that she left medicine and she, now she's an artist, you know. Wow. But I also know physicians who take this information and they apply it in their practice and as a result their work becomes so much more satisfying. Yeah. Because all of a sudden they're dealing with... They have bigger pictures. The, the, the whole person rather yeah. than just sort of an organ, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm conscious of people listening to this for the first time and coming across your work for the first time. I want to really hammer home this whole your teachings about the mind and the body. And and one bit, again, I found really fascinating was the nice bit. Yeah. uh So can you elaborate on that, this idea of people having certain personality traits that will directly influence whether they get ill or not? Sure. So um, there was a paper presented at the International Modern Neuron Disease Congress in ALS, it's called in North America, in Munich, Germany back okay. in the 80s or the 90s. And these neurologists from the Cleveland Clinic presented a paper which they pointed out that when people come to their diagnosis for a motor neuron disease, of which most famously Stephen Hawking died. Yeah. And he's an interesting case which about which I should say something in a moment. Right. But um, when people present to their clinic for diagnosis, they undergo electrodiagnostic testing. Their nerves are tested. Yeah. The technicians who do the test will write on the side of the test, this person can't have ALS, she's not nice enough. Or, I'm afraid this person has ALS, he's too nice. And what the neurologist said, that despite the obvious unscientific nature yeah. of their observations, almost invariably they proved to be correct. Right. Now you do a survey, and this has been done as well, of neurologists, and they say that the ALS patients are extraordinarily nice. They just don't make the connection between illness and the illness and the sex. They just notice this as a curious yeah. factoid. Yeah. But when you look at what this extraordinary niceness is all about, remember I said we have an anger circuit in our brain? Yes. It's about the repression of anger. Yeah. They're so nice that they're not assertive at all, and they are um, suppressing their healthy anger. Now, healthy anger. If I were to intrude on your space right now, either emotionally or physically, mm. a healthy response on your part would be to get angry with me. Mm-hmm. No, you'd say, back off. Mm-hmm. That healthy anger would protect your boundaries. Now, what we know about the emotional system, the hormonal apparatus, the nervous system, and the immune system is that they're not separate systems. Scientifically, they're one unit, different manifestations of the same unit. Mm-hmm. Healthy anger is there to protect your boundaries. So is the immune system there to protect your boundaries, to let in what's healthy and nurturing and to keep out what is dangerous. Now, when you repress your healthy anger, 
you're also messing with your immune system. So you're much more likely to get malignancy or autoimmune disease. That's the connection. And, and physiologically, it's not that difficult to grasp. And so people that repress healthy anger have diminished activity of their immune system. Or just as healthy anger that you suppress, if you keep it in, turns against you in the form of self-loathing or depression, yeah. the immune system can also turn against you. And now you've got an immune system attacking you, and that's called autoimmune disease. And there's a much higher percentage of women who well, suffer from that, right? of, of the two major genders in the society, mm. which is the one expected to stifle their healthy anger? It's yeah. women. Yeah. And to serve the needs of others and not to think of their own needs and to take on the stresses yeah. of their environment. The New York Times had a headline article about called Society's Shock Absorbers during COVID, <sighs> how women took on the stresses of their husbands and, and they felt guilty if the husbands were stressed. Yeah. You know, so... That's why women have more autoimmune disease, because it's the immune system. That's not their fault. They're acculturated to do so. And this goes back to childhoods where, you know, good little kids don't get angry. Well, the message that the kid gets is that angry little kids don't get loved. And so to get the love, you suppress the anger, you suppress the anger, and then later on you're diagnosed with this, that, or the other. And everybody says, where does it come from? Now, if you look at Stephen Hawking, mm. he had a very emotionally unsupported childhood. Right. And um, when he was diagnosed at age 20, I think he was given two years to live. Now, as we happen to know, he lived more than another five decades and became one of the world's leading, if not the world's leading, physicist. Yeah. And he stopped being nice. Uh, he would run over people's feet with his wheelchair if they, if they bugged him, you know. But what Hawking also had is women who absorbed his stresses. Mm. Like his first wife became totally depleted emotionally. I'm not blaming anybody for anything. I'm just saying... First of all, as physicians, let's get a bit humble about it. Mm. Let's not tell somebody that they're going to live for two years and then they live for 55 years or 50 years longer and we don't even ask why. Yeah. Shouldn't we at least wonder what happened here? Yeah. You know, and shouldn't we at least question the certainty of our understanding of things? Mm. And shouldn't we begin to see that this niceness that people talked about actually is more than just the milk of human kindness? It's also about the repression of healthy aggression. Yeah. I mean, you have a list in the book of all the things that within that kind of nice bracket, you know, the kind of self, self-sacrificing, self you know, yeah. taking on other people's emotions, feeling guilty, yeah. you know, putting yourself last, all of that. And as you say, these are all normalised things and yeah. people can be celebrated for being, oh, they're so nice, they're so, you know, they're lovely, <coughs> they're really generous, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know the expression, the good die young? Yeah. They do. And, uh, and, uh, oh my God, I've never really thought uh, about that. My brain's just exploded. And, and they, wow. die, they die young and all these people come to your funeral and they celebrate how nice and kind and generous you were. Now, I'm not militating here against kindness and generosity. I think that's part of authentic human interaction. But when it comes at your own expense yeah. and, and, you, and you extend that kindness and generosity to others while denying it to yourself which itself is an outcome of childhood trauma, then you're in trouble. Yeah. But the, the good news is that people, when they fall ill and they, they wake up to what they've been doing to themselves and they change their patterns, they learn how to say no. That has a remarkable impact on their health. I mean, that's what I was going to ask you for anyone listening now who feels like they could be described as some of those things we were talking about. Um, is there a way to change kind of behavioral patterns like that? And how do you do it? Well, certainly there's a way to change it. We develop these traits not because they're genuine personality traits that we're born with. 
No baby is born denying their own needs. You'll never meet one. No one day old baby will ever desist from expressing their needs very volubly and loudly if they need to. So it's something that we learn. And we learn it because we get the message somehow through any number of mechanisms. But we learn the message that if we're being truly ourselves with our emotions and our needs, we're not quite acceptable to our environment. So then, to, therefore, to belong, to have that attachment relationship, we give up on our authentic connection to ourselves. Yeah. Now, as children, we have no choice in the matter. As adults, we can ask ourselves, do we still have no choice in the matter? Do I still have to go for the attachment, for the relationship at the expense of my own needs yeah. and my own genuine self-expression? If somebody decides that the price of suppressing themselves has become too much, they can change. Yeah. They can change by a very simple exercise. Sit down every day and just ask yourself, where today didn't I say no? When does a no that wanted to be said? And somebody asked for, to meet them for coffee, and I didn't feel like it, but I went anyway. Right. When, when on the job I was asked to take on another project, and I was already overwhelmed. Uh, when my spouse wanted to have sex, and I didn't feel like it, but, mm. I, but I did anyways for the sake of getting along. And what was the impact on me? of not saying no in those situations. I mean, how did I really feel afterwards? Mm. So you can work on this stuff. And just that exercise, people tell me have changed their lives. So it's a question of getting conscious. Mm. But change is possible. Can we talk about addiction, Gabor? Mm -hmm. You are an addict, is that safe to say? No. No. Because I don't say that of anybody. You don't say that of anyone? No. Okay. Nobody is Talk a, to me. Nobody nobody is an addict. That's not who they are. Okay. Um, if I could outlaw the word addict, and anybody who wants to use the word addict, they would have to say, so-and-so is a human being mm. who's had so much pain in life that they have an addiction through which they're trying to soothe themselves. I will accept that. Okay, mm. but that doesn't make them, and that's not who they are. The addict doesn't. It's too some, defining. Yeah, yeah, it, it's too confined. Is it? You know, nobody, yeah. nobody is simply their dysfunction. You know, right. so yeah, yeah. So, so that's why I, I resist that, yeah, yeah. that that languaging. Okay, so have you had addictive tendencies and behaviors? Sure, I have. And it's quite an interesting one in that it's not up there with the top kind of like when you think addictive tendencies. Yeah. You know, drugs. gambling, rah, yeah, drugs. Yeah. You know. Tell us about the one that you had. Well, if I may, let me give you a definition of an addiction first. Please. Okay, so an addiction is manifested in any behavior in which a person finds temporary relief or pressure and therefore craves, but then suffers negative consequences as a result of yeah. and doesn't give up despite the harm. So craving pleasure, relief in the short term, harm in the long term, inability or refusal to give it up. That's what an addiction is. And I said any behavior. So that could certainly be related to cocaine, crystal meth, heroin, alcohol, nicotine, glue sniffing, whatever. It could also be gambling, to eating, to shopping, yeah. to um, pornography, to the internet, to the cell phone, to gaming, to extreme sports, to anything under the sun. Bulimia. The issue is not the behavior as such, it's your internal relationship to it. If it provides temporary relief, pleasure, and you crave it, suffer harm, don't give it up, you've got an addiction. So I don't know if I can turn the table here for a moment, but may I just ask you, if, according to that definition, have you ever had an addictive pattern in your life? Mm. And I don't care what, by the way. I'm not asking what. Yes. Okay. 
My question is, what did it do for you in the short term that you appreciated? What did you like about it? Mm. There was, uh, I guess, a feeling of light relief afterwards, a feeling of uh, a okay. feeling of nothingness. And that was a welcome change from what was there before. I guess angst. Okay, so it's anxiety. Anxiety, stress, angst, angst anxiety, confusion. Okay. Yeah. So, so that inner peace that you're, I think, not describing, mm. is that a good thing or a bad thing? In at, its in itself. At the time, well, uh, yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, in itself. Yeah, it is useful. It, I it, it, it's a nature of addiction that yeah. it creates more problems as we go along, but it does provide something temporarily. Yeah. In other words, addiction wasn't your primary problem. Addiction was your attempt to solve a problem of angst, yes. of, of lack of inner peace. Yeah. And so the medical way of looking at addictions is this genetic disease is absolute scientific nonsense. Mm. First of all, there are, nobody's ever found these genes. Uh, we could talk about them forever, but trust me, nobody's ever found the genes that if you have them, you'll be addicted. If you don't, you won't be. No such genes exist. Mm. Um, the sound genes may make it more likely, but they don't determine it. Nor is the addiction a choice that you made. Nobody chooses to be living in angst. That angst that you're describing is, I would say, an outcome of childhood trauma. Mm. So that addiction is an attempt to solve the problem of the emotional states induced by trauma. So my mantra on addiction is, as I describe in this book and my previous work, is not why the addiction, but why the pain. Yeah. And for that, you have to understand people's lives. In my case, my addictions have been to work, and in my particular case, to also compulsive shopping for classical music. Yeah. I mean, I was really interested in that, as was my husband when we read the book and you talked about that. At what point did you realize that was an addiction of some sort? I realized it long before I did anything about it. Okay. I mean, the addict has a whole, the addicted brain has a whole lot of ways of justifying its own behavior. So in my case, because I was a workaholic and stressed and tired, I said to myself, well, I have the right to enjoy myself with music, you know. So one addiction justified the other. Yeah, it's a kind of reward system. The addicted brain is very clever Mm. in finding uh, justifications. But in any case, I was aware of it long before I was ready to give it up. Mm. And you worked with addicts in Vancouver for quite a long time again. I worked in a district of Vancouver that is, without a doubt, the most concentrated area of drug use uh, anywhere in the Western world. So that in a few square block radius, we have more people using, injecting, inhaling drugs of all kinds. And all the medical consequences of abscesses, HIV, uh, hepatitis, and mental health conditions, and so on. Uh, often people living in the street, homeless. So I worked there for 12 years with that population. And what did that do for you? Well, it certainly taught me about trauma, because of the hundreds of women I worked with over 12 years, not one of them had not been sexually abused as a child. And many of them were indigenous Canadians, our First Nations population that was horribly traumatized by colonial policies that persisted in a formal way until very recently and still persist in the form of unspoken prejudice Mm. to the present day. Um, So I I learned about trauma. I also learned to see human beings in a very full sense, like these people, they were not addicts, that's not who they were. Mm. They were very often very sensitive, very intelligent, very humorous, very resourceful Mm. people. I mean, I couldn't survive in the street the way they did for a day. It takes incredible ingenuity. Mm. I also learned how fundamentally similar I am to them. You know, I mean, I'm not comparing things. I mean, I was a middle class, well renumerated, renumerated, thank you, physician, you know, respected and all this. 
but the same psychological, not to the same degree. They'd suffered much more than I had. Mm. But the same kind of emotional pain, same kind of emptiness that you're trying to fill through the addiction, the same kind of dishonesty that results from addictive behavior, um, denial, compulsion. I, I could recognize all that in myself. Do you think there's a reason why you've kind of dedicated your life to trying to help people? I can tell you a story about that, which has to do with when I'm one year old and away from my mother and very ill to concentrate it. My uncle goes to some danger to find a Christian pediatrician to come and see me. Sorry, how old were you when this happened? Just under a year. Still in Budapest. Still in Budapest, 1944, December. And um, the doctor comes to see me, and she's very decent, you know, very humane. She's coming to see this Jewish kid, you know, who's living in semi-hiding with a large number of other people, and she doesn't betray anything, and she looks after me and examines me and gives me the treatment, and when she leaves, so I'm told, according to the history written by my elder cousin who was there to witness it, she patted my head and she said, don't worry, my little fellow, you'll pay them back later. Yeah. I didn't know that story. Wow. Yeah. And so you did. So, so I, yeah, I, I've been doing that, yeah. Not to self-romanticize. I also wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to be important in the world <laughs> and I wanted a white coat and a sense of authority and, and you know, expertise. And mm. I also wanted to make a good living and be secure economically. That was all that stuff. But the urge to heal, I think, does go back to somehow make my own suffering have some meaning in the world. So with your adult change, Abor, yeah. can you tell us what you, what you thought of for that one? Um, the adult change was that in the 60s I was a student radical. I was, this was the time of the Vietnam War, and I was very militantly against that. And uh, In fact, I spent most of my undergraduate years away from the classrooms and engaging in radical politics. There were some psychologists around who would say that this rebellion of the younger generation is actually just anger at their parents. It has nothing to do with the political issues at hand. Mm -hmm. I hated that. Mm. But they were right. They were not as right as they thought they were. The issues that we were militating against, the injustice in the world, the massacre of innocence, the lies of the media and, and, and of the military and of the politicians, they had to be challenged, they had to be opposed. But the emotional motivation the rage that I had around it had everything to do with my own unresolved trauma and my anger around it. Yeah. So at some point, much later on actually, I realized that I need to pay at least as much attention to the internal world as I do to the external one. Yeah. So that was the biggest change, I would say. And that has actually led me to, to be here right now if I hadn't engaged in that. I had an aunt who herself was an Auschwitz survivor. Now she saw stuff about me that I just wasn't ready to see. I was in my early 20s. Okay. And showed to me once, quoting um, Polonius, the famous, to thine self be true. You know, I didn't know what text she was talking about. But decades later, I found out I wasn't being authentic. I was not connected to myself, which itself is a trauma impact. Can I ask you, for the sake of those people listening, in a world that feels ever more 
scary sometimes to live in. Mm -hmm. And just also on a more micro level, lonely when it comes to technology and the onset of that and the new ways that we connect with people, thinking that a WhatsApp conversation can replace a real life, you know, conversation. You know, as someone who, as you said, discovered their internal world and, and, and has to work at that and has worked at that and explored it their whole lives since then, how can people tune into themselves? How can people be and learn how to be authentic if they feel like they're not there yet? Well, I would ask anybody who poses that question. I mean, who's actually asking the question? I am. Yeah, but what in you is asking the question? As in, why am I asking that question? Not why. What, what aspect of you, what in you is asking that question? Uh, I know that seems like a trick answer, but it really isn't. I mean, I'm going, yeah. so, I'm going somewhere with this. Yeah, no, no, I get you. I feel like I'm thinking of that on behalf of the people listening who may be listening to you thinking that they want to do work. But I'm also thinking on a personal level of feeling more and more detached from the world because of how the phone kind of insidiously comes into my life and yeah so what i'm creates this screen i suppose <coughs> exactly yeah so what i'm saying is that the person in you who's asking the question yeah and the one inside anybody who listens with whom that question resonates that's the part that recognizes the inauthenticity right and who recognizes it is the authentic part okay so actually the thing is just to keep asking the question mm. and, and and then to notice with some with a fair degree of, in fact, infinite, if you can, self-compassion when you're not being authentic, mm. when in a relationship or in a public setting or private setting or any setting, you say to yourself afterwards, oh, that wasn't quite me. Well, who's noticing that in the first place? Yeah. Only that part of you that insists on being authentic, yeah. being authentic and being yourself. And then you can ask yourself, hmm, despite my commitment to be authentic and coming from myself, in this case, I wasn't. So instead of condemning oneself, one just asks, why wasn't I? What belief did I have? Mm. What's the belief that I had? Oh, if I was being truthful or authentic, they wouldn't like me. That's one of the stories. Mm. Those stories always go back to childhood. Mm. It's not that difficult. We just notice the one who's noticing and we just notice what is being noticed, and we just inquire into what's going on here. Yeah. So it's it's not as daunting as all that. Mm. And you know what? You can be in this world without having to sequester yourself, and or, and, and without being authentic in it either. Mm. It's possible, as people have often said, to be in the world without being of the world. Mm. Um, Gabor, I can't thank you enough. Mm. Thank you so much for your time and. I really hope that um, this epic expedition of talking about the book affords you some rest at some point. <laughs> yeah, I'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe see you on the dance floor at Bergheim sometime. Uh, thank you for this <laughs> conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to Gabor Mate and fuck you all. I'm no longer being nice for the sake of my health. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, as I said to him in the room, my brain exploded when he said that. Only the good die young. It's like, God. I'd love to know 
what you thought of this conversation. Please let me know. Hit me up on Instagram. Review the episode and do go get that book. Um, It's called The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. It's out now. There'll be a link in the show notes. You should check out the episode I did with T all about ADHD as well. And if you're interested in hearing experts talk about their fields and the changes they're trying to make, I think you'd like the Dr. Gwen Adshead episode as well from the last series, which rather than why we get ill, it looks at why people commit violent crimes and whether you can change the mind of a murderer. Also a fascinating listen. So... Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next Monday. As always, Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Remember what I said. You've got homework. Try and go and tweak a little part of your life this week and let's discuss it. Thanks so much. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.